The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 252. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the 11th Doctor story, Cold War. And joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Cory Stika. Hey, Father Cory. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Folks, if you can, we would really appreciate it. It really helps us a lot if you write a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Now, it's, it may seem like a small thing, but it is a big deal. It helps us a lot to get the show out in front of more people. And, of course, when you share the podcast with your uh, TARDIS-loving friends, that helps us grow our community and reach more people. Uh, I want to tell you about another show that's on the StarQuest Network called Let's Science, a wonderful show, uh, about 15 to 20 minutes every other week from our friends down in Australia. The, the Catholics of Oz, Caroline, Lindsay, and Lino, and they talk about some fun science topic. It's always a lot of fun. You want to check it out. It's at sqpn.com slash science or wherever you find fine podcasts. We should mention that that's three, the Catholics of Oz are three people, not two. It's Caroline, <laughs> Lindsay, and Lino, not Caroline, Lindsay, and Lino. I've I've had too much <laughs> coffee this morning, so that may be pro- part of the problem. I know I'm a fast talker, people have told me. And uh, uh, stick around to the end of the episode, because we are going to have some of your listener feedback. Before we get to talking about Cold War, there has been some Doctor Who news that we should discuss. Uh, by the time you're hearing this, it's been out for a few weeks. But the big news is we, we knew that Chris Chibnall, the showrunner for Doctor Who in the most recent season, and the next one, is leaving the show. Yay! <laughs> yeah. And so we were all wondering, who's going who's to take over? Will it be... The guy who did Babylon 5, J. Michael Straczynski, who said he was interested, which I thought was a very interesting idea. That uh, would be interesting. Yeah. yeah. It would, it'd be awesome, but the idea of an American showrunner is not going to happen. <laughs> no, no. Well, we do know who the showrunner is going to be, and uh, if you're a Doctor Who fan, you probably already know this, but it's Russell T. Davies returning to the TARDIS. He's the one who brought back Doctor Who in 2005 and stuck with it till 2010. Something like that. It was five years, was. I think. Five, yeah. six years. Yeah. I didn't look it up, but it was something like that. And so he's coming back after more than a decade away. Uh, what do you guys think of this development? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I, I was never a fan of his original run. As much as I was grateful that he brought Doctor Who back, I wasn't as big a fan of his as I was Moffat's. Um, and some of the stuff he's done since Doctor Who, I've not watched, but you read you know, the synopses of it and... It's a lot of, you know, uh, LGBTQ and social justice and stuff like that. And I don't know if I'm really excited about him coming back because, you know, he's going to be bringing that with him again. Mm. Well, I think I have a bit of a different approach on that because Russell T. Davies has produced a lot of problematic material, but he also did that before Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. So he it seems to me that in bringing back Doctor Who. He had a sense of, okay, this needs to be a, a family show with a broad audience. And even though he would slip in 
little Captain Jack elements here mm-hmm. and there. Mm-hmm. He he didn't he realized this is not a platform for that kind of stuff, and so he he focused on fun, interesting storytelling, and he did some some really great work. I mean, Midnight is phenomenal. Yeah, yes. And even Love and Monsters is good until the conclusion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I still it just differ, but <laughs> falls apart at the conclusion. Um, so, so I think he's a better storyteller than Chris mm-hmm. Chibnall. And I think he, at least in, in between 2005 and 2009 or 10, whenever it was he left, he had a sense of what this show needs to be about better than Chris Chibnall has displayed. And so I would, even though he's not necessarily, he's not my ideal showrunner, I would view it as a step in the right direction in terms of salvaging Doctor Who at this point. On the other hand, society has changed in the last 10, 15 years, and television has changed in the last 10, 15 years. And so Russell T. Davies might come back and think, oh, well, now I have more liberty to do Mm -hmm. all the stuff I kept on a leash back then. And we could get a continuation of Doctor Woke instead of Doctor Who. Yeah. And if it's if it's more Doctor Woke, I'm not going to be enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. Although even then, the storytelling should be better. Right. I think I I agree uh, for with much much of what you both said. In fact, um, I think he's being brought in to salve, like you said, salvage Doctor Who. This is a response yeah. to Chibnall's tinkering and messing with Doctor Who's fundamentals and 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 they want the this sends a message to fans we're bringing back this guy who saved Doctor Who in the past and here he is and I I I think that's part of why they're bringing him in and that also could be a message to Russell T Davies himself mm-hmm. that you need to do what you did the first time we're not looking for Chris Chibnall type stuff. Right. Yeah. And right. and so that could itself play a role in producing a better show. And he gets better special effects, better CGI, but the formula you did before worked really well. Let's go back to it. Right. And, you know, that, that Dr. Donna season was one of the best, uh, you know, I, that was the, the, the best of Chib- of uh, Chibnall's, uh, Davies' seasons, I think, was that, mm. that last season there with the Dr. and Donna and, uh, Wolf, who is one of my favorite secondary <laughs> characters, uh, you know, it, it just uh, it gives me some hope. Yes, t- Russell T Davies gave us the Slitheen. I, I know we 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 will remember that, <laughs> but uh, but I'm I'm looking forward to see what he does. I, I'm, I'm sure he even even he realizes the mistake there. <laughs> uh, one one question will be interesting is will he continue with what Chimnall has set down insofar as the Timeless Child. Or will he retcon so, yeah. that out? Which I mean, I don't. I I like the idea of the timeless child. I don't have a problem with it. I think it's pretty. I think it's cool that there's more out there that we could explore. Yeah. But I could also see him saying, "Okay, yeah, this was a radical change to the show, and I think we need to walk this back somehow." Yeah i i don't I don't I think it would be very unlikely for him to do that. Yeah. Because he has a tendency to honor the canon. Mm-hmm. He, there are things he could have ejected. He could have ejected Paul McGann's doctor entirely, right. mm-hmm. and didn't. And and it would. It, it, I don't think the Timeless Child is that radical a change to the show. Right. All it does is restore mystery to the Doctor. Yeah, and I don't. I, I think 
uprooting that now that it's been planted would cause more problems than it would solve. I think at most he would just sort of ignore it and you yeah, know, kind of could do that. Move on. But, I think the timeless child stuff will be wrapped up as much as he can by Chibnall in his last you know season. But yeah. uh, I'm also curious, you know, what he does to for his his new doctor. You know, what mm-hmm. that's gonna that will tell us a lot who he chooses to be doctor. I mean. Maybe Tenet will come back. <laughs> let's, let's have a complete reboot back to the Tenth Doctor. Well, that can happen. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. Moffat showed us the Doctor can return to previous faces if he wants. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh, that would be interesting. I, I would. I mean, I love David Tennant, so whatever. That would be great. Um, all right. So that's. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, listeners, what you think of this change and the the news about. Uh, Russell T. Davies coming back, and you can email us at doctorwho at sqpn.com. But our primary purpose for being here today is to talk about this episode, the 11th Doctor story called Cold War. And uh, Jimmy, if you could, could you give us a recap? This week, Doctor Who does The Hunt for Red October meets Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World meets Ridley Scott's Alien meets meets H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Badness. (laughs) The year is 1983. It's a dangerous moment in the Cold War when a Russian sub under the North Pole is disabled by thawing out an ice warrior they found frozen in a block of ice. The sub sinks below its safe diving depth, so it's fallen and it can't get up. The ice warrior thinks his people are dead after having his, and after having his warrior's code violated by a Russian seaman, uh, he decides to take vengeance on Earth by starting a nuclear war using one of the sub's missiles. But the Doctor and Clara are able to talk him down from this, and eventually a Martian UFO shows up, returns the sub to the surface, and takes the ice warrior back to Mars. The end. <laughs> so a few a few uh, uh, preliminaries. This is the first appearance of the Ice Warriors in New Who, although it won't be the last, of course. Uh, and we, and it's, it's fun that we're talking about this episode now because we just talked about the first appearance of the Ice Warriors in Doctor Who. Not only is this the first of the Ice Warriors in New Who, it's the first since the third Doctor's yeah. time. Right. The last time we saw one was, in, was the Monster of Peladon uh, in John Pertwee's era. Right, it, right. So, yeah, it's an interesting idea to bring them back from that from that long uh, past. And we we see a lot more of them coming going forward including seeing them on Mars itself at one right. point. That's that's a a fun one. Uh, we 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 talked about that before. That's the 12th doctor. Uh Yeah, the the one we're referring to there is Empress of Mars and it was written by the same author that wrote this, Mark Gatiss. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, right. so he's apparently got a thing for ice warriors and <laughs> Mars. <laughs> So another first in this episode was the first time, and we'll get we'll, we'll talk about it maybe later. But I wanted to bring it up as a one of the preliminaries. First time a companion actually stays put when the doctor tells them to remain where they are. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Uh, the the mention well, was made of that. They they make a they, they kind of riff on that because the doctor tells Clara stay here, and she's like, okay, don't argue with me. I'm not <laughs> I'm not going to argue. It's like. Whoa, that's the first time in 900 years of phone box traffic. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, that, that was kind of fun. And then, uh, so let I want to talk a little bit about the setting, because this is a setting I'm kind of familiar with, because I've, I've, I've read... Been trapped on a Russian submarine uh, uh, yeah. before? So let it be revealed now? No, uh, not not firsthand necessarily. But I read I, I back in this era, I read Hunt for October. I read a lot of books about, nonfiction books about submarines and uh the the cold war and stuff like that and so it was fun to kind of watch this 
there are a couple of inconsistencies. We're under the ice cap, and then what do they show? Icebergs and water, open water. <laughs> like, yep. They're, they're not actually under the ice. The, the North Pole would be a cap, despite global warming. It would still be a cap. Uh, well, and certainly in 1983 it was. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, also, the the underwater sub landed, so it can't go anywhere, is very much a base under siege. And right. between that, that and the Ice Warriors, this feels a lot like a modern take on a Patrick Troughton Doctor Who. Right, like yes. that first Ice Warriors episode in, in one sense, you know, that uh, although in that case the Ice Warriors were external and coming into the base, whereas this was a, right. a base under siege from inside, so. Um, right. The, I, I'll talk a little about the cast. David Warner shows up as the scientist. I always love David Warner. Yes, and so there we have the Hooniverse face issue showing up again, where <laughs> there are only a limited number of faces to go around in the Doctor Who universe. <laughs> Where did we see D- David Warner uh, before? In- he's the he's the first Doctor. David Warner is the first Doctor. Where? I'm sorry. He. I'm. I'm. Perhaps I'm mistaken on that. But David Warner uh, was cast as the replacement for William Hartnell in Twice Upon a Time. No, am I confusing him with someone else? You're thinking David, oh, Bradley. David Bradley. Okay, yeah, yeah, my yeah. mistake. My mistake in that case. <laughs> well, David, David Warner has done voices for Doctor Who before. This is the first time right. he appears on screen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, David Warner. It's like he's been in Tron. He's been in a bunch of stuff like that. But uh, yeah, he's fun in this as the crazy Russian scientist Liam Cunningham. Which anyone who watched uh, Game of Thrones will have recognized. But he's done other things too. Is the captain, and it's it's kind of oh. great that you have a mm-hmm. Scottish captain because sean connery did oh, the yes. captain in the movie version of hunt for red october so it's a, it's, it's a very clear uh, to me a connection all, I, I all love, uh, russian sub captains should be scottish and i, I love <laughs> that the scene where, where claire is kind of figuring out this whole tardis translates for you thing wait i don't yes. speak russian i'm speaking <laughs> russian are they speaking <laughs> russian yeah. right 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 uh so and then you have uh, the political officers. So, and that was the, one of the things that they didn't say outright. But the the episode starts with the, the ship. It's a ballistic missile submarine, so it's carrying nuclear missiles. And they're doing an exercise. Uh, and in order to launch a missile, you have to have two officers. On American subs, it's a captain and first officer have to agree uh, mm-hmm. to launch. But on Russian subs, Soviet subs, it was the captain and the political officer who... The captain technically outranks the political officer, but the political officer reports to, to up a separate chain of command. He's up to the he's party. He's the snitch. Yes, he's the, he's the snitch. And, and, th- and this kind of snitch does not get stitches. <laughs> no. He's uh, there with permission. By the way, uh, an, uh, the political officer's role in this was one that, re- again, it reminded me of the kinds of things we would have in Patrick Troughton era Doctor Who, mm-hmm. because... In a typical base under siege story in the second Doctor's time, you would have the Doctor and companions plop into a situation, and there would be an immediate question of can we trust them or not, and you would have typically the leader deciding, yeah, I guess we can trust them, and the leader's chief advisor would be, no, 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 we can't trust them at all, they're spies, (laughs) and and that's exactly what we have here. Well, and he was was the one that was ready to, let's launch all the missiles now. I mean, he was very gung-ho for start the war now and count the, count the, uh, count the deaths later type of deal, you know, so he was very, very, uh, 
that again, that one note character that you would see, especially in like the Troughton era, you know, where it was just yeah. Yeah. launch nukes, launch nukes, launch nukes, let's kill them, let's eject them out the airlock, you know, that kind of deal. And consequently, he gets killed by the Ice Warrior because that's the fate of all of the characters <laughs> who are barbarically irrational and don't trust the Doctor. That's right. That's that's what happens to that character. So, yeah, so the, a, uh, I didn't... <laughs> there's a couple problems I had with the premise, but I, once I got past them, you know, you set it aside. First, why is a Russian ballistic missile submarine doing oil exploration work <laughs> in in the Arctic? Like... This is not a thing that that you send your your most important nuclear assets to do. Okay, but okay, and then they've cut this figure, a uh, mastodon or whatever they thought it was. Uh, they thought it was a mammoth, a and mammoth. it's like, dude, there's a reason we call mammoths mammoths. It's be- <laughs> right. because they're they're mammoth in size. That's just big. That is not yeah. mammoth. How could you possibly think that's a mammoth? And then for some reason a sailor says I'm not waiting I'm I'm melting him out of it because reasons <laughs> Well no so he 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 knows that he's not going to I didn't have so much problem with that because the sailor is just he just wants to see what's in the ice I guess and and he's he's not realizing he's living in a movie where things in the ice <laughs> will reanimate <laughs> Right. You know, if you th- if you think about this in the real world, if some scientist, some egghead scientist, has found this fascinating ancient thing in a block of ice, and you're never going to get to see it because it's going to be melted in some lab, you could say to yourself, "Hey, let's take a look at this thing." And you know, living in the real world, you're not expecting the thing to reanimate <laughs> and kill you. Yeah, just and just blame it on someone set the thermostat wrong. Yeah. Uh, so they the the ice warrior escapes and starts wreaking havoc, and the TARDIS, which apparently is headed for Las Vegas, gets redirected by by the ship onto the the bridge of this sub, which is again what another one of these things a suspension of disbelief because there's no way the TARDIS fits in on the bridge of a submarine unless it's smaller on the outside. <laughs> so we say, yeah, but that's maybe, fine. That's fine. Maybe it shrunk down a little bit before it landed. That's right. That's right. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to point out is, so the time they've arrived, mm-hmm. 1983, is is one of the peaks of the Cold War. Right? Yeah. Now, there is a tendency, whenever you find a story set in the, in the Cold War, it's going to get described as at the height of the Cold War. And it's like, okay, no, the Cold War was not one big plateau where you <laughs> can point to any random moment and say this was the height of the Cold War. Right. But 1983 really was one of the peaks of the Cold War. Uh, Leonid Brezhnev had died, and Yuri Andropov had seized control in his after his time. Uh, Andropov would not last long, and the Russians were really, really jittery in 1983 because, in part, NATO's annual Able Archer uh, exercise, a set of... Uh, war games uh, that NATO would do every year was being done again in 1983, and it was being done in a much more realistic way, where they were not just having people play heads of state. They actually, so Able Archer would involve, it would be war games that would simulate an escalating situation leading up to a DEFCON 1, which means we're at nuclear war. Mm Mm-hmm. In 83, for Able Archer 83, 
they made it more realistic and they actually pulled in heads of state like Reagan and Thatcher and people like that to play themselves. Mm. And so so the Russians are seeing the the Western powers doing this even more realistic than usual scenario leading up to nuclear war with actual heads of state involved. And they're thinking, this is a ruse. They're doing it for real now. And so in hindsight, after this stuff got declassified, Able Archer 83 has been viewed as one of the moments, we, like the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62, that we actually came very close to nuclear war. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Was this around the same time as the, the that situation with the... Uh, Soviet colonel in the early warning system who like yeah same the, same same era in the eighties okay where the 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 everything said we had launched missiles at them and he said why would they launch missiles now this was not during Able Archer but you know a different time but yeah. yeah and and why would there only be one <laughs> right right that would seem like a bad idea uh, well that's, so, that's one yeah. thing I think those of us on the West don't realize is you know we think of ourselves as the good guys and the Russians are the bad guys in this, but the Russians saw it the exact opposite. They thought they were convinced that we were going to wipe them off the face of the earth. We were going to do anything we could to make sure that the Soviet Union doesn't survive and you know that that they were just defending the homeland, just yeah. as we would and say I, our troops and, were defending the homeland. And it didn't help to give press conferences where the press conference began, Reagan is saying things like, and we begin bombing in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a joke, but yeah. he didn't realize it was, it was a, on air. It was a quote-unquote joke, joke, but yeah. Yeah. the Russians didn't necessarily take it that way. Yep. I do like also in this that despite the Cold War setting, they never mention America. Mm-hmm. They mention the Western powers. And I like that they're not just focusing on America because thinking about this as British television – you know, there's this tendency to portray Americans as, you know, they're the real aggressive people and and they're um, they're the people who are going to get us into a war and stuff like that, potentially. But by not mentioning America and by portraying NATO as a block, as the Western powers are doing this, because they did, it in a way is owning the British involvement in this. Mm. And I like that as as British television, um, you know, acknowledging, yeah, okay, we were part of this, and we were part of the tension in this period. It, we can't just, you know, say, oh, it was the Americans. We were doing this too. And they didn't get into the ideology, the you know, communist versus democratic, and yeah, Thatcher that, and whatever. Yeah, yeah, that was another thing I have in my notes that it's nice that the doctor isn't preaching. Right. Because you could just imagine if Peter Capaldi's 12th Doctor was here, oh, how much we would be hearing about war and <laughs> insulting us about being warriors and mm-hmm. and stuff. And in this, the 11th Doctor is, he doesn't want conflict, but like when the Russian captain is saying, I'm going to do what I have to do in order to protect my nation, the Doctor is like, fine, I just think there's another way. Right. right. And he's not preaching about it. Well, they even have, you know... Oh, the ice warrior can smell a, the, the fact that you are a soldier, you're a warrior, and the captain immediately comes back, well, how about you? Yeah. That's an you interesting... Know, that, that, again, yeah. that pointing out the doctor is a warrior, too, or was during the time war. The other thing that's interesting is that the, the ice warrior himself, uh, Marshal Skaldak, yeah, is, he's not a monster. Gra- Grand Marshal Skaldak. Oh, yes. <laughs> 
Uh, and he's not a he's not a monster in the sense of where he's just you know the evil bad guy like a like a Cyberman or a Dalek. But the Doctor recognizes he's an honorable warrior who has been you know dishonored and is it is you know in out of sorts because he's been in ice for three thousand years. Five thousand. Yeah, right. Since three thousand BC, and he's he he appeals to him and appeals to mercy. And I like the fact that the they make this ice warrior, even though he's killing people and doing bad things, he's a complex complex motivations, shall we say? Uh, mm-hmm. And 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 it's it's not a matter of just defeating him and killing him at the end. It's a matter of you know convincing talking him, talking him off the ledge. Yeah, yeah. I like that part of it. Mm-hmm. Another interesting bit, and this is the part that really reminded me of At the Mountains of Madness. So the thing from Another World and At the Mountains of Madness both involve frozen ancient life forms coming back and causing problems. And in At the Mountains of Madness, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's old ones have been dug up uh, by a group of scientists and then the scientists start dissecting them, and then they reanimate, and yeah. then they counter-dissect the scientists, Ooh. because they're, they, they haven't been around, they haven't been awake for 10 million years. They don't know what these ape creatures are, and so they, they start dissecting the scientists, and then the other scientists finally show up and see what the old ones have done. And there's a scene very much like that in this episode where Skaldak has apparent we don't see it. We we get it all in reverse camera angles, but Skaldak has dissected some humans and and Clara and the professor played by David Warner are there and they're like the professor is like those barbarians and the doctor says not not or those savages. The doctor says not savages, forensic. He's learning about humans and how they're built and what they can do. So this is apparently a clinical, surgical thing. He didn't just tear them apart. And to, I'm, I would imagine Mark Gatiss had that scene from At the Mountains of Madness in mind when he wrote that, because it's such a great parallel. I also love the use of that scene in Clara's story arc in this episode, because early on, since... Skaldak will smell a warrior both on the captain and on the doctor. Clara volunteers to go in and be the doctor's mouthpiece to talk to Skaldak and negotiate with him. And she does, and she's able to do it and is pleased with herself afterwards. Even though they realize Skaldak wasn't in his armor and has Mm -hmm. escaped, she still talked to him. And the doctor, she's like, did I do good? And he's like, yeah, you did great. And so she's very pleased with herself, but then after she sees what happened to the soldiers that got, or the seamen that got dissected, she's talking to the professor, and it's and he's asking, what's wrong with you? And she says, well, I did the scary stuff. I went in and talked to him, and I was fine, but seeing those bodies, it just makes it a lot more real. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a nice emotional pivot, and that scene actually, the dissection scene, plays a role in Clara's emotional journey in this episode. Well, most companions, I think, especially in Modern Who, come to a moment where traveling with the Doctor isn't just a, you know, a, a vacation among the stars, uh, where, but where they're confronted with the danger of the Doctor, 
you know, and and it usually occurs relatively early, uh, maybe even yeah. in the first episode. The doctor has a false advertising problem because he sure makes it sound like you're going to have a vacation among the stars, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and it ends up not being that really fast. Right, and and she got confronted. I mean, there was danger even in the, the Kalara's first episode, but she gets confronted with the the bloodiness of it, the the you know the brutalness, the, the brutal. That's what it, the brutality of the of the events right then and there in in this episode. Uh, so it's it's interesting to see. Uh, there's there's also another great bit in uh, that scene where. Um, Clara and the professor are waiting. And this is the scene where the doctor has told Clara, wait here. Yes. While he goes off and does something. They've established that the professor is a huge fan of Western music. Mm -hmm. He's a fan of Ultravox, which was a group I didn't really know. Mm -hmm. He's also a fan of Duran Duran. And to keep Clara's spirits up, he sings a little bit of Hungry Like a Wolf badly. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, she's, he, he asks her while they're alone, is it true? Are you from the future? And she's like, yeah. Tell me what happens. And she's like, I'm not allowed to. No, 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 I have to know. And she's like, no, no, I can't tell you. And he finally says, Ultravox, did they split up? <laughs> <laughs> and, and she doesn't answer the question, but yes, they did in 1987. But then they got back together, and then they split up again in 1996. And then they got back together again. And then they f- split up for final in 2013. <laughs> and they got they got to back got back together right after this episode aired because of oh, course their it? music was featured. Yeah. Oh, funny. That oh, is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we mentioned that, that. Well, actually, I don't know if we mentioned there is uh, in addition to being a base under sheet story, it's also a Tardish Tardis separation story. Quite the separation too. Oh right, yeah. Because the doctor said he'd been fiddling with the hostile action displacement system. And had system. Hads, yeah. uh, and it activated and sent the TARDIS as far away as it could on the planet to the South Pole. <laughs> so, yeah, oops. Well, yeah, and it's not meant to do that, but and it is a it is interesting because at very early in the episode, as the sub is sinking, at, which is when the Doctor and Clara arrive, the sub is sinking, and the the you know cabin of the sub is flooding, and the TARDIS just vanishes. And Clara actually asks, what's going on with the TARDIS? And the doctor says, later. And then at the end of the episode, we get the explanation that the doctor has been fiddling with the HAD system. And this is an actual thing from Classic Who. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the hostile action displacement system is designed to, if the TARDIS is under attack, to move it out of the way. Not necessarily to the South Pole, but <laughs> move it out of the way. And the system was first introduced in the Second Doctor's time in a story called The Crotons. And so we haven't come to it yet, but it it does appear there. And it will continue to appear in Stephen Moffat's time now that it's been reintroduced. Mm, okay. Uh, they, uh, yeah, they sent it to, Ant- yeah, it went to Antarctica, the South Pole. I was just thinking that they mentioned... Um, why is there a cattle prod on board? They use the Grzenko uses the cattle prod to disable the uh, Skeldak, and they said, "Oh, well, po- a, a seaman does initially, and then the professor grabs it for self protection." That's right. That's right. And uh, they said it's for polar bears, which I think is interesting because uh, it is the Arctic, which means mm-hmm. where bear place, and not the Antarctic, which means the no bear place. So if you ever want to yeah. remember where where polar bears are, they're in the Arctic for the bear place. So just 
I just always thought that was funny. I made a note of that in my notes. Um, <laughs> one, well, yeah, I was going to get pedantic about submarines propulsion and moving laterally with propellers. And I just, that annoyed me, but uh, that's, that's a little <laughs> pedantic. So I'll leave that be. I also was uh, concerned about, because they keep saying we're at 700 meters, like that's dangerous. And I knew we had subs that can go way beyond 700 meters. But um, but it turns out there that this particular type of sub couldn't. Yeah. So I gave. So after looking it up, I gave him a pass on that. <laughs> well, and, I, and I wonder if you know they were thinking of like the uh, cruise ships, especially that you have now, where they actually do have like jets on the side of the ship for doing sideways movement right. uh, at port, especially. There, I'm I'm going to guess that some of the modern subs might have lateral thrusters, but but he's the doctor says you know use the propellers to push the sub sideways and propellers only push subs forward. They you use, and then they have rudders to steer, but you can't push the, yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. And so <laughs> anyway, and they, they could work in They said the turbines are offline. They could work off of batteries. So that was, that was, a, 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 could be accurate. So anyway, just that annoyed me. Well, and they do talk about we're operating on battery power at one point. Yes. Right. Right. So th- that would make sense. Um, also, submarines don't rise and sink because of propulsion. They they do through ballast, taking on water yeah. or expelling it. Next episode on secrets of submarines. <laughs> we'll be talking about. I wasn't going to get pedantic, but you know, just we opened that it door happens. and I stepped through it. That's that's all that's to it. <laughs> I will say I did like the submarine environment because of how different it mm-hmm. is than other environments we get on mm-hmm. the show. Uh, the closest would be like being trapped in a spaceship. Like mm-hmm. maybe in forty two, mm-hmm. but I like uh, I like the sub environment. It's it it's pretty low tech, and the fact they're at below their safety limit means we get you know some leakage, right. which is visually interesting as you see water dripping around the set. And at one point, you know, the doctor is racing down a hallway and skids in the water. Right. And and I like I just like the the physicality of this environment and how different it is than what we normally get. And they didn't just find some industrial factory location and film there. You know what I mean? This is this this really felt like we built a submarine set. You know, with the closeness and the right. that sort or of thing. Rented one, <laughs> or yeah. A cert- yeah, certainly rented it. I mean, they could have even been on on a ship, but you know, a real ship, but. Um, it it did not feel like we we we're trying to convince you Boat. that this chemical factory is a <laughs> is a uh, you know is a submarine boat boat. Well, yeah. yes, a, a, the submarines are referred to as boats. Uh, any other notes on this episode, Father Corey? Well, I got a kick out of the you know guns because of course you know the Russians have to have guns, but pistols. I mean, I'm not an expert on Russian pistols. So this may be what they look like, but they look more like you know American 1911 pistols to me. Than what Russians would use, and I can guarantee you Russians wouldn't have used them. No. And then you know AK-47s on a submarine—that's not going to end Bad well if you open idea. up with that. I, I was just wondering about this, guys. You're 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 waving around slug throwers on a pressurized vessel. Is yeah. you know really? And it's, yeah. and slug throwers is like the AKs that are designed to you know penetrate armor, human armor. Like uh, say, I mean they can they can really go, they can. They can go through. They can. It go won't through go through something. the hull, but it would go through important stuff inside. I was just looking up the. Oh, also, and then there's ricochets too. You know? Yes. Um, but 
you're in you're in a pressurized vessel below safe diving depths and you're throwing slugs. That does not sound like a good yeah. idea. So just to answer your question, Father Corey, that, that was uh, a Takarev pistol was the standard issue, and it does look like a 1911. So Okay, so it's, it's probably the Russian ripoff of a 1911 then, because <laughs> we, we know they did a lot of that, actually. Yeah, but uh, the, there, there are... Yeah, they wouldn't have had. Well, never mind. That's we're really getting into the weeds of the secrets of Soviet weaponry. But uh, back to Doctor Who. Back to yeah. Doctor Who. Uh, anything else, Father Corey? Um, that that was it. Jimmy. So um, I liked the fact that Skaldok's armor is autonomous. Mm-hmm. So when he once he's out of his armor, he can still direct the armor to do things. So it it provides a double threat. He is a threat himself, and his armor remains a threat. That's nice. I like that. The CGI of Skaldak. Now we don't see a lot of him out of his armor. We see his hands, but which is which are done with a practical effect. But his head, when we finally see his head, is CGI, and it is not great. I don't even think it was great for the time this was made. But I'm that's not what I'm ultimately interested in. So I'm I care more about the story than the CGI. The mutually assured destruction element that they end that they present us with at the end, I thought was a little heavy-handed, because what they've done is Skaldak has armed the missile launch system, and all he has to do is press a button and he'll launch a missile that will start World War Three. The Doctor, meanwhile, has got his sonic screwdriver and he says, "I will destroy us all." before you can press that button. And so apparently the sonic screwdriver is quite the weapon <laughs> if it can destroy all of them before he can even press a button. And I thought that was interesting, but I thought the given that they brought up the concept of mutually assured destruction between the Western powers and the Eastern powers earlier in the episode, I thought is a little heavy-handed the way they play it out with the Doctor and Skaldak, putting them in essentially the same situation. Right. I Oh, also, one other thing. Uh, it, since, we, since this has become Secrets of Submarines... Sure. You can't <laughs> launch nuclear missiles from 700 meters down. No. They will be crushed by the water pressure. You need to launch them within 50 meters of the surface. Very good. Yes. So, there we go. <laughs> Thank you for, for not making me have to... <laughs> be more more of my facts about submarines uh, i'm like the kid with the dinosaurs anyway uh, thank you jimmy i think that about does it for our uh discussion of uh of this episode uh, i did want to i mentioned we were going to talk about some listener feedback and so we have some yeah. feedback on our recent episode 247 on the first doctor uh episode the crusade and we got this on our youtube channel ro wrote one of my favorite episodes in the entire series, I think. The direction has a very filmic feel, from the opening shots of the mysterious TARDIS arriving in the middle of a battle to the wonderful revealing shot of Sal- Saladin listening from behind the curtain. I agree. It, it actually did have that feel of those, you know, uh, sword and sandal epics of the fifties and sixties mm-hmm. that you that we you know often see. Um, yeah, the 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 way the shots are framed and that sort of thing. The directors went to some some pains to give it that feel so i agree i like that which is all the more difficult because you know that they had much smaller sets much obviously way smaller budgets than a lot of those those film epics and yet they were able to do some of that with what they had yeah yeah there yeah there was they used a lot of different sets too and you know a lot of interior sets for that 
By the way, speaking of the Doctor Who universe face face shortage problem, uh, Saladin, I forget if we mentioned it, but Saladin was played by the actor Bernard Kay. Yes. Who has appeared in other episodes of Doctor Who. One that we've already talked about is um, uh, the second Doctor episode, The Faceless Ones, where he plays Inspector Crossland from, from the police. And he's also, I guess, in a third Doctor serial where he plays a guy named Caldwell. Just uh, just last night, I was actually watching a series I've never seen before. Someone, a viewer of or listener of Mysterious World, recommended a series to me called uh, Jonathan Creek, which is about it's a detective series, and it's about a guy who designs tricks for magicians who uses his knowledge of stage magic to solve how locked room mysteries happen and things like that. And so instead of a whodunit or Columbo's how catch em, it's more of a how done it okay. show. And someone suggested after your and my psychic testing episode, Dom, that I might enjoy this series. So I checked it out and I was watching an episode of it and I'm going, who is this actor? I know this guy. It was Bernard K. It's like, oh, Okay, that's Inspector Crossland and Saladin and this Caldwell guy, and it's like, okay, yep. I I I knew I knew this guy from somewhere, and it was Doctor Who. Yeah, he was also oh. Carl, Carl in Dalek Invasion of Earth from the first Doctors. Right. Oh, and also in the uh, in the pilot episode mm-hmm. of of or pair of pilot episodes of of Jonathan Creek, the very first murder victim on the show is Colin Baker. Oh, funny! <laughs> and he's he's playing this playing this artist who gets offed. <laughs> well, if he was anything like the uh, Sixth Doctor, maybe that would. Now I want to watch that. Uh, so. <laughs> he, he he was a little flamboyant, and you may not want to watch the episode with children around. Oh, okay, okay, I see. <laughs> I mean, he was he was he was doing his his he was doing art artistic nudes with like clown faces. Oh, you <laughs> clowns. That's my problem. That's why I don't want to watch it. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, we should uh, wrap things up. We'll take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Martin G., Jorge F., Tim D., Sean F., and John C. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What did you think of the 11th Doctor story, Cold War? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the fourth Doctor story, The Seeds of Doom. Until oh, then, boy. <laughs> Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, the Cold War won't stay cold forever, Captain. <laughs> <laughs>